folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... What's it like to go undercover inside corporate Korea? This summer, The Korea File is featuring a series of interviews with Michael Prentice, a PhD candidate in the University of Michigan's Department of Anthropology on the country's hugely influential table. Prentice interned for a year at a Seoul area company conducting semi-covert academic research on the unique corporate culture of South Korea. Here he discusses the semantics, politics, and evolution of the word chaebol the origins of post-Korean War corporate and economic development in the country, as well as society's fascination and obsession with behavior and excesses of its ruling oligarchy. This is the first of a three-part conversation. Sure. So I'm teaching a course. The anthropology department lets us lets advanced graduate students teach courses um, among their you know of things that they want to teach. So rather than anthropology 101, you can teach something that you're interested in, but also make it kind of exciting for students too. So one of the things I've always been interested in is is thinking about who is a capitalist, what are they, what motivates them. So um, a lot of times when we think about capitalists, we think okay, greed, profit some sort of maybe lack of humanity or something. Um, but if we look across history, you know, back in U.S. history, uh, back in European history, and if we look more laterally across cultures, we see less ideas about pure greed, and we also just see different ideas about what does it mean to be a capitalist what's uh, the, in the, society. What's the title of the course? Sure, the title of the course is called Capitalists Across Culture and History, with a subtitle of From Marx to Musk. Mm. Um, so I'm tr- trying to get students who might have anti-capitalist feelings and students who might have pro-capitalist feelings and then 
get them to read stuff that will challenge both of their sides of view, right? So Marx, for example, Marx had certain ideas about what a capitalist was that empirically, you know, just are more kind of imaginatory than, you know, than we might think about. Part of the course, for example, we'll be thinking about, you know, Henry Ford. What kind of man was Henry Ford? Was he a good guy, a bad guy? Or at least what, not necessarily a good guy or bad guy as if we're judging him, but, you know, what are the forces that shaped his approach to being the head of this big, you know, the, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world, shaping how people lived, and that kind of responsibility is associated with that. So. Very interesting. So yeah. speaking of capitalism, uh, your focus of study is the South Korean chables. Can you define the term chable for someone who might not know anything about corporate culture in South Korea? Yeah, so chable is a very tricky term to use, and I, I actually don't use it in some sense. I, I use it... Uh, well, let me clarify that. I don't use it when I'm talking to corporate people. Um, I don't use it often in Korea. Uh, I'll use it sometimes in America. Uh, in academic discussions, sometimes in my own writings, probably not. But it basically, a chable is, in the kind of classical definition, there were, they used to have kind of five key descriptions about what a chable was. So it was a you know, large, diversified conglomerate, so a company that, that has a lot of companies under it, and they all do something slightly different. It had a ruling family that owned the shares in it, typically had one, uh, one member of that family who was seen as kind of the patriarch. Another feature was that Chable had interlocking relationships with each other, so the companies would own each other, so company A or subsidiary A would own subsidiary B, subsidiary B would own subsidiary C, and then subsidiary C would own subsidiary A, for, for example. It's called interlocking uh, shareholding. And a fifth one was usually that they were kind of dependent on the state for uh, capital raising um, rather than having their own banks. Um, Why don't you use that in Korea? So yeah, there's, so there's a reason. So Chabal tends to have kind of a, a neutral um, term in, in America, some neutral, neutral to negative depending on your point of view. A lot of uh, finance literature, economics literature, they'll just say, these are the Chabal, this is the economic institutions in Korea. You know, they're Kind of cartel-like, but this is this is kind of the defining, you know, economic structure in Korea. If you were going to just to say, well, what's the big economic phenomenon in Korea? If you use this term, it's highly loaded. Uh, there's a famous story about a it's probably apocryphal, but a, a guy I think in the 80s, you know, they were in a board meeting and and one of the managers had mentioned the word just mentioned the word chebol and and one of the owners of the company picked up an ashtray and just threw it at the guy for using that word. Now, I think that story is completely apocryphal, but it, it, agrees, it gives a sense that there is a certain negative tinge to it in Korea. Um, so when I'm in Korea, you tend to use the word daekyeop, which is from the word dae, big, and kyeop, this corporation, uh, so a large corporation. Chaebol literally means wealth, che, and bol, which is kind of like a clan or a faction. So you can see that in words like chaesan, meaning assets or pablo, which means kind of a faction. It's, by itself, the word doesn't really mean much. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily give us a sense of what the, you know, what it denotes. But I think today in Korea, that, that word chebol has a very, it's, a, it's as if you're taking a negative stance towards the large corporation. So if you're taking a more neutral stance or a positive stance, you might say, oh, I want to work at a daekyo. I want to work at a big corporation. If you're saying, oh, the, the big corporations are ruining society, you're probably more likely to say, the table. And this is along the fault lines of South Korean ideology um, between sort of progressive and conservative? Um, I don't know. It, it's people, you know, you could even have like a, I, you could, I could imagine in my head like a manager 
who's in, you know, at, a, at one of the big companies, saying, you know, using the word take you up during the day, uh, and and then when he's out drinking at night, saying, you know, these goddamn chable or something, you know, they're ruining society. So it can be a matter of shifting stances and or just politeness of use. But if I could add a little bit, is that that what a chable is is actually kind of a, it's hard to actually pin down, not just the words that, it, you know, not just the, the the semantics of it, but you know what it is and and how it's changed over the years actually is kind of a tricky thing to account for. Um, so, for example, you know, Chabel in the 70s and 80s, highly funded by the state, um, very capital intensive, huge kind of family operations in terms of you had you had not only a, a central family, and sometimes we think nuclear family, but you had I mean brothers, cousins you know, male adults who were working as managers, working, who had ownership of subsidiaries. And over time, that that's changed a lot. And so you, there's actually a sociologist who graduated from Chicago. I think he's at Seoul National now. He did research on how they, essentially the kinship structure of the big companies used to be very lateral in terms of, you know, adult age, male man, you know, men who were managers or owners of subsidiaries. And over time, in over 80s and 90s, and now in the 2000s, it's actually, it's, kind of shifted to more vertical, kind of single nuclear family units. So if you look at ownership structure of companies today, you'll see something that looks like grandfather, father, son. Say, take a case of Samsung, where you had uh, Lee Byung-chol, Lee who's maybe dead, no one's quite sure yet, uh, and then his son, Lee Jae-young. So you actually see a much more limited degree that the family members are involved as much these days. Um, so and we, we don't it's know, mostly mostly professional managers, kind of at the higher level. So we don't know if the second in command is alive or dead. Is there a certain degree <laughs> of of uh, opaqueness to looking into the table? Yeah, uh, well, sh- certainly I should say I haven't been following the news as closely as I was when I was living in Korea in 2014, 2015. But there was a, there was just to uh, give your listeners some background. Egan, uh, he I think had a stroke, um, and and he has, they've said that he's been in poor health for at least a year, a year and a half now. But again, I haven't followed up the, uh, with the news lately, but there were some rumors that, well, he might just be dead. So they might be doing that for, you know, reasons of organizational stability. But to go back to the question of opaqueness, um, yes, that is <laughs> the number one issue, I think, with Chebol. That's why people have trouble with them. That's why they're very hard to study. You know, when I was choosing to study this phenomenon about six years ago, I really had no idea, you know, to the degree to which they were just practically opaque, hard to get into, culturally kind of difficult to talk about, and or at least not difficult to talk about, but the the, the angle, the stances that it puts you on, whether you, sort of, for example, if you say Dekyop, people might think you're positive. You know, right. People think you're negative. So it's hard to have kind of a neutral stance or an academic stance in some ways to these things. Let's establish yeah. a post-war timeline of Chebol development. What are the origins of some of the big names, Samsung, for example, or Hyundai? Sure. So well, one of the things that's interesting about Chebol is that, yeah, most people know Samsung, Hyundai, maybe, and then about two or three others after that, if you lived in Korea, you're familiar with Korea, but most people actually don't know a lot of the other uh, Chebol. Uh, can you um, give me a top five? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. Okay. Top five today, uh, so that would be Samsung, Hyundai, uh, SK, uh, Songyang, LG, uh, sorry, LG should be three, SK probably four, and then fifth, well, if you're looking at 
uh, a table. So this is actually a streak. So if you're looking at large companies, POSCO, the steel company, would probably be the fifth or sixth biggest company. They're actually not a chable. They are just a formerly state-owned um, steel company, but happen to be one of the biggest companies in the world. They used to be the biggest one, Hanjin uh, or Doosan yeah, Constructions. So dating back to Sigmund Rhee, for instance, was that the time that the sort of beginning was triggered, or was it uh, under Park Yong-hee? That's a good, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so one of the, yeah, what, how the table transformed under Park chung is, um, is a very interesting question. So he, when Park chung came into power in, in 60-61, one of the big targets of his, you know, of his coup were actually business owners that were seen to be profiteering from the Syngman Rhee uh, regime. So people that were either cronyistic or uh, had some backroom deals, you know, wealthy landowners who were kind of corrupt, probably had some pro-colonial um, sentiment tied to that. And Park Jing was actually very against these business owners, thought they didn't pay taxes. Uh, and then when he took over, he actually arrested, I, I can't remember how many of the top business owners uh, in the country. Um, and it was, I think, Yi Byung-chol, who was the head of Samsung at the time, he was actually in Japan, did not get arrested, came back to Korea. So I think this is around 1961. But then it was at that time he, he kind of negotiated with Park Chung-hee, discussed, you know, why, you know, why it was good for Park Chung-hee to actually befriend, you know, business owners. And I think it was from there. I mean, the whole 60s was a very, and 70s was a big transformational period. But Park Chung-hee's um, attitude towards tables changed quite a bit. I think Park Chung-hee, he... You know, people see him as being very favorable to the, to the big companies, but there were a lot of ways that he was very uh, harsh on them. I mean, he was a, he was kind of a sheriff in some sense, you know, corralling them if they if they went out of um, out of what they were doing, you know, out of what they were supposed to be doing. For example, Sam- Samsung got sanctioned, I think, in the late '60s by Park Chung-hee for having this illegal sugar Im- importing business. It wasn't illegal, but it was not part of what their agreement was, and there were certain sanctions that they issued against him, but. Yeah, and, you know, they, their attitudes toward them, or at least by Park Chung-hee, changed quite a lot. So, early 60s, after the coup, there was a partnership between the uh, nascent economic forces in Korea mm-hmm. and the government. Mm-hmm. So, what did that look like? Well, a lot of it had to do with what, the, what capital could be brought in um, and where capital could be allotted to. Um, so, to the best of my knowledge, I mean... There, there just wasn't a lot of capital in the early 60s. Park Chung-hee had kind of big plans to develop industries. They decided that, you know, for example, he wanted to start a steel company, like, right away um, because he thought steel would be um, a very favorable industry for Korea right away, but they didn't have enough capital to actually get invested in it. So kind of started with light industries, importing, exporting. And this is when you see the, you know, the stuff about the wigs. Um, but it wasn't until you, they, that there was more capital influx in the late 60s and the 70s where they were actually able to invest in heavy industry. So uh, you, you see the 70s is when they invested in chemical uh, industry, the LG Chemical, for example, Hanwha Chemical, you know, two of the biggest uh, chemical companies in the world. Uh, that's when you see steel industry just take off, cars, con- and construction as well. Let's move to some of, talking about some of your writing uh, in your dissertation you uh, discuss communicative imaginaries. Uh, I don't know what this means. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, you know, talking to a person writing a dissertation is kind of like asking a cook, you know, who's coming up with a new recipe. So 
you're playing around with different ideas and uh, part of what my dissertation is is I'm actually in the field of linguistic anthropology which is kind of uh, is a kind of a small side of, of what we might think of cultural anthropology um, but what we mostly look at is interaction people like language and how social relations are transformed through how people use language um, anyone who lives in Korea or has been in Korea knows what an important role that language plays in, say, face-to-face -face interaction. You know, are you using chondema, are you using panmal? You know, these kind of orientations and how they can change your relation to anyone in that sense. So communicative imaginaries is, is in a sense, attempt to, to think about, um, to kind of take the interest I have in, in these big companies, big structures, and to focus on language and interaction and kind of merge them together I can tell you a little bit so more about. So you discuss how ideas about corporate speech connect with ideas about national economic progress. Can you unpack that a little bit? You know, I think Chebol, for example, are, you know, they're seen as the, if the Chebol are doing well, you know, the country is doing well. It's, it's, we used to have the same idea in America, if GE does well, or what the phrase was, what's good for GE is good for the nation. In Korea, people pay attention to what's happening inside corporations much more significantly than they do in the U.S. I mean, we're paying attention to many things in the U.S., but I mean, to look at things like HR policy, um, you know, promotion policies, who gets promoted among the executives at Samsung and LG every year, that's, that makes the news in some sense. So it's, it's um, there's just a, a different attitude towards what these corporations stand for in the national imaginary of Korea than it does in the U.S. And, and one of that is speech is a highly ideological terrain and in, um, in Korean news you'll see all the time about like say the Korean air incident um, where, oh sorry, I should not the Korean air incident, the nut rage, the nut rage incident. incident yeah, yeah, I guess how you frame it is. This is uh, where the daughter of a big chairman uh, had a total freak out at a uh, stewardess on a Korean air flight and she uh, was roundly criticized in the media for her tantrum. Um, so Right, and forced to resign, even, um, and went to jail briefly, uh, but then was released. Yeah, so those incidents become ideologically just hypercharged for Koreans at all you know levels, even in corporations and out of corporations, for being examples of, you know, how people in a superior position should talk to people in a in a subordinate position, and and those kind of incidents come to stand for kind of larger larger things, right? So. Oh, you know, for a lot of people that said, oh, this incident really shows how the Chable, Chable family members are really, um, you know, just abusing their power in society. Um, so it comes to stand for a lot of things. And in the corporate realm, what you see a lot these days is all this stuff around flatness, right? So ideas about hierarchy in the, inside corporations is, is highly scrutinized. Um, so you see a lot of corporations that are changing their language policies to, you know, make uh, language more flat, quote unquote. That could be getting rid of titles. So instead of your classic kind of military style titles, which you know uh, that go up from you know Sawon, Terry, Kwajang, Chajang, Bujang, you know, and so on, uh, you'll see companies that either change the first name address uh, or they'll change to kind of alternative forms. Like they'll just everyone just calls each other manager. Uh, you'll see there's another company I visited. They call each other pro, like as in professional. Uh, you'll see companies that even have the employees have to call each other by fake English names that they've all kind of created for themselves. So. Uh, in the writing, you talk about how popular perception or misconception 
of Che Bowles is reflected in the cultural dimensions theory in which complex historical economic configurations are interpreted as being part of a natural cultural characteristic. So how would you describe popular perceptions of Che Bowles, generally speaking, within South Korean society? You, you talked a little bit about that already. Yeah. Well, so part of what I was writing there is, is uh, actually when I talk to guys in, in Chebol, and, and I can talk a little bit more about what I was doing actually inside them, but a lot of them actually have these managers, employees, they have a, a fairly high degree of consciousness about what, you know, what their kind of corporate culture is, where they stand in the nation, in the, well, not the national, the international sphere of things, and this cultural dimensions theory is this guy, Hofstede, it's from the 90s, kind of a psycho- psychology national hybrid where, you know, you have high power and I don't remember the terms, you know, um, high power, low power kind of dynamics and, you know, countries can be on, you know, they fall on one side of the spectrum or not. And, and Koreans, you know, in Korean managers, they, they talk about this in training, they talk about it as kind of part of everyday life, is that they're kind of aware that they're on the low end of, you know, they're not, op- they're not as open as Apple, they're not as open as Google and and so part of even even managers themselves kind of internalize this idea that they're on the low end of the developmental um, spectrum in terms of even in terms of corporate culture. So it's very interesting when I was, uh, you know, inside and asking managers, you know, all the time and they would say, oh, you know, we're, we're trying to improve our corporate culture, that kind of thing. But at least expressing to an outsider or a Westerner that, you know, this kind of developmental idea that mapped on to corporate culture. When we hear about the Korean economic experience during and after the Asian financial crisis of 1997, the discussions typically framed by economists and historians who focus on larger structural changes in the Korean economy in terms of corporate governance, in terms of labor relations. Meanwhile, though, you write that Chebol's instituted reforms to address their communicative failures as ways of addressing economic issues. Uh, And you say that there were whole orders of discursive changes happening within the human resources departments of major companies to help bring their corporate structure and operations into line with global standards. So tell me about some of these discursive changes. Well, you know, 97 brought uh, just a whole, you know, this year of the IMF crisis, the Asian financial crisis. And this destroyed Korea's economy. Well, it didn't necessarily destroy it, but it... it, um, Korea actually rebounded faster than other other countries that had gotten IMF reforms. Um, it didn't put them certainly paid off their IMF debt. It didn't put them in a permanent state of uh, um, in, indentured um, status. Um, but it did at least pave the pave the way ideologically to say that you know these big companies that are that gotten too powerful and we need to kind of correct them. And and one of the ways that that they were uh, see, you know, to see a way to correct the Korean economy, so to speak, was not just fixing the debt-to-equity ratios of Korean companies, which had, I think were at that time in 95 or 96 had been up to like 500%, uh, so f- five times the amount of debt as they had equity. Um, but that's what economists, historians, um, um, you know, financial economists are much better at, at talking about. But there's this, a whole other set of topics that were about, more about behavioral Code of conduct, code of conduct issues, and and those filtered through HR, right? So, how are we going to fix the workers? How are we going to fix corporate cultures? You know, corporate cultures are breeding this kind of um, behavior. Um, you know, hierarchy is a huge issue. You know, so there were a lot of reforms starting in around the late '90s, or at least maybe early 2000s, um, 
looking at especially the reform of the um, what's called the Korean kind of seniority system called Hobongche, uh, which is loosely tied to the military. I mean, it, it's the idea that every three years you get promoted uh, to a different three to four years, or you get promoted to a different level. So you go from Terry to Kwajang, uh, for example, kind of automatically, as if you were just moving up the ladder. Uh, and then early 2000s, you saw the birth of something called Song Kwajui, which is um, performance or metric or kind of a meritocratic um, or at least performance-based approach to uh, HR. So that's the idea that everyone actually has to perform at a certain level in order to get promoted. So um, you see a huge shift in, then in how companies kind of are implementing these um, Song Kwajui projects. Would this have happened without the... Um crisis of 97? That's a good question. I mean, there you could say that there was just a general sociological problem, which is that they had, you know, um, or kind of a general labor problem, which is that you had a lot of older workers who had manager positions, who had kind of lifetime jobs, and there wasn't really a way to um, deal with them. And, you know, either within the companies, they were... They, commanded huge amounts of money, unions were very strong in keeping them together, um, but, you know, having a 60-year-old manager, you know, or a whole fleet of 60-year-old managers who had been there for 30 years was probably something they were going to have to confront anyway. I've read that uh, Chabot families structure their corporation's stock issuances in a very different way than what we're familiar with in North America. Is this the case, and do you know what that looks like? Yeah, I, I don't know the details as much as... Um, Certainly, an investment uh, or professional or an economist would even probably know them. I worked at uh, one small chabel um, that had that was ruled by or owned by a family. Um, they had four members who were the kind of main owners and managers. Uh, there were some other family members who probably had controlling stakes. There were some toddlers who got given stock shares. Um, the toddlers, the babies of the family. Yeah, um, as a you know as for what reason, you know, and, and it's a very sensitive topic that I just, I decided that I was not going to ask them about that because you never know exactly why, you know, they're, they're putting money here or money there. Or... That's The Korea File for this week. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Soul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there too and on Twitter at The Korea File with daily links, current news, and information about the peninsula. And please leave a review of the show wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Music on this episode's from Kim Yun-suk with her 1987 single, Gunao. And check back wherever you found this podcast on May 25th for part two of my conversation with Michael Prentice. Until then, thanks for listening. From Montreal, I'm Andre Goulet.